Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Would you take your Bibles, open them to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 in a Bible study that I've entitled, By Faith, Abel Worships God. So we're on this study through the book of Hebrews, and we've come to chapter 11, which really begins the application part of Hebrews. For the first 10 chapters, we have a couple themes that have been unfolded, that have been revealed to us. The first one is, remember, Paul is writing to a group of Jewish Christians in the first century that are wanting to go backwards to a time, back to the place of formal religion. They miss the temple worship and they miss the formalities of the priesthood and the temple and the incense and the sacrifices. Besides that, they're feeling pressure from their family. They're feeling pressure from their culture because for them in the first century to follow Jesus Christ meant to lose everything and they're experiencing the loss of everything and being tempted to go backwards. How we applied that in our lives, of course, is the constant temptation to backslide. The constant temptation that we're faced to not go forward and press in, but instead to choose to go backward, maybe even to a formal religion that God saved you out of. And there's that tension there. And that's been a theme that Paul has been writing chapter after chapter very specifically. The second thing that we learn, which is far more important, and that is, is that Jesus is sufficient. Your faith in Jesus Christ is sufficient. You find all your sufficiency in him, that he is superior. And so page after page and teaching after teaching has been this constant teaching and reminder that Jesus is sufficient and he's superior in every single way imaginable. The new covenant supersedes the old covenant. And Hebrews, remember, is filled with warnings. There was the warning against drifting, the warning against doubting, the warning against becoming dull, despising God's word, and even defying God's word, which leaves us the question of application. And the question of application is this. Okay, you have made your case. You have convinced me. So how do I do this? How? And remember at the end of chapter 10, toward the maybe verse 35, 36, actually in verse 38, the answer is the just shall live by faith. Everything's by faith. That's what God values, by faith. How how do I make it through the day? By faith. How do I face the uncertainty of my bills? By faith. How do I raise my children? By faith. How do I remain single? By faith, by faith, by faith. You weren't just saved by faith, you also live by faith in the daily, moment by moment, abiding relationship that we have with Christ. How do I apply these principles in my life? I do so by trusting God. Because over and over again, we're gonna come back to verse six of chapter 11, and we're gonna be reminded in each of the people we study, this truth is universal. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse six, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must first believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. 
There is no way, no alternative, no second, third, fourth, tenth option of pleasing God except by faith. And you need to believe there's faith that operates in two ways. Believing that God is who he said. You believe in God, you believe God. And you also know and believe that he rewards those that diligently seek him. Now it's been some time since we opened up in chapter one. Would you come back to Hebrews one with me? So we build some context as we get into this, what is known as the hall of faith, chapter 11. We've spent some time, some introductory studies in chapter 11 already, but today we get to the first person. His name is Abel. Before we look at Abel though, let's be reminded how Hebrews opens up. As soon as the Hebrew believers received this letter, the very first word in the letter is God. Hebrews opens up with God. And it says this, God who at various times, this is Hebrews 1.1, God who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Let me read it to you from the New Living. It says, and now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. Notice, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Verse three, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, he is an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Hebrews opens up with God. This letter opens up with God because he's the central focus. There's no attempt to prove his existence. There's no attempt to substantiate his existence because there's no need. God exists and we're his creation. And it's God who speaks. But you know, a lot of different theories and replacements for God have attempted to speak over the years. For example, evolution. You know, evolution doesn't speak. Why? Because man created it. So through evolution, it's man's voice. Atheism doesn't speak. Why? Because man created atheism. And man speaking through that philosophy, agnosticism doesn't speak. Why? Because man created it. False religions of every kind, false philosophy is every kind. They don't speak. They're just vehicles for the voice of man. No, it's only God who speaks. And remember, we learn we would never know who God is unless he chose to reveal himself to us. And so we know who God is because he revealed himself to us through his word. And in our last couple of studies, we presented to you evidence of why you can believe the Bible is an accurate, the translation of the Bible you have is an accurate representation of the very God-breathed, God-inspired autographs that were written over 1,600 years, 40 different authors, three different languages, three different continents, so that today you have no contradictions, but one central theme, God's love for mankind and his pursuit to redeem and rescue men and women from their sin. God revealed himself. And it's in his revelation through his word that we learn both by practice or excuse me, by precept and by practice that God is who he said he is. And remember, we learned the significance not just of the external evidence of the Bible, but the more weighty evidence that Jesus Christ himself believed the Bible to be the literal word of God 
And you know, we of course believe that because Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. But that, you know, most people don't believe that. So they have to actually consider that Jesus not only believed the Bible, but he taught it. And not only did he teach it, but he based his very life upon it. And you go, well, wait a minute. So what difference does it make if Jesus believed? How can you prove to me that what Jesus said is true? And the singular proof that Jesus provides to you and to me that everything he said and did was true is the resurrection that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead and is alive right now, bringing witness to his scriptures to all who believe. Hebrews opens up with God because he's the central theme. And you and I, we can't know God unless he reveals himself to us. And that main message from God to man requires him to reveal. And out of his grace, he has. We can't figure out God on our own. We have these walls around us. They're called time and space. We have limitations. We don't have infinite knowledge. We are continually learning. God has infinite knowledge and never learns anything. And for us, we're like in a box and God must invade our box and reveal himself to us. God is in the supernatural. We live in the natural realm. And yet in his love, he revealed himself to us. Now, when we come to back to Hebrews 11, this is so encouraging to me because we see how faith, our faith has substance and evidence. Although we may be accused of taking this blind leap into the dark and we have blind faith, every single person that has ever placed their faith in Jesus Christ is not blind, but now you can see. It's the exact opposite of that accusation. You actually aren't blind at all. You can see God has removed the blinders. And yet you're not, it's not like blind faith, like there's no evidence. There's not like a a blind faith where you're just kind of believing things because people told you. No, faith has both evidence and substance. And we have learned, haven't we? Every single human being that has ever lived on the planet lives by faith. Everybody lives by faith. Everybody believes in something and someone. And everyone lives by faith. We trust in a lot of different ways. We trust others when we're driving. We trust when someone makes a promise to us, we trust them to deliver on that promise. Anybody ever hand you a check? You trust that that check with the numbers on it represents how much money's in the bank. I remember in the early days when I worked for a family, when we got our checks, we all rushed to the bank because the first ones to cash their check got money until the money ran out. And if the money ran out, anybody ever work like that? It's like, Ed, you, you work for a bad company. Oh, yeah, there was a great family, but there were times when money was tight. And so if we got our check, we took off for lunch to the bank to get our money first because if they didn't have money, it would be another week until we got paid. Anybody amen to that? Anybody who live like that? Like, it doesn't happen that way anymore. It's like direct deposit, you know, it's like, oh. But when we got a check from our employer that said, you can have this money. This is a promise that if you take this money, it'll be deposited in. You have to live by faith. How do you know if they have the money? How do you know if it's ever going to be transferred into your account? Everybody lives by faith. So what's the difference? The difference between a believer and an unbeliever is where you place that faith. That's of utmost importance. When you place your faith in the one true creator God, you have both substance and evidence You believe that he is, and you believe that he rewards those who diligently seek him. You choose to place your faith anywhere else, then you live a life of emptiness and a lack of hope. 
So we come to chapter 11 and we see what faith looks like in the real world. Although we're reading from the Bible, sometimes we place the people in the Bible in some other category, like they were so different from us. And while they were separated by time and culture, for sure, and while these men who had no television, no internet, they had no airplane travel, they had no cars, they had very little of what we have today, they still were able to live a life of dynamic, amazing faith that we are studying their lives today to encourage us. They were normal people. And you know that as you read through some of these names, some of these people experience great failure, great sin. But how does God remember them? He doesn't remember them for their sin. Hebrews chapter 11 isn't known as the hall of failure. It's known as the hall of faith. God remembers them for their faith and what their faith led to in action. Because I'll tell you this, what you believe and who you believe in will dictate your behavior. Which means that by our lives, by our lives, people can tell what we believe in. Which makes it possible, doesn't it? To say one thing, but live another. We have a word for that. It's called hypocrisy. Where it's possible to say one thing, but your beliefs actually dictate your behavior. And so your behavior can betray your words. As we'll get to that in a moment when we see the life of Cain and Abel and the contrast in their lives. What you believe and who you believe in will dictate how you choose to live your life. Will choose to, to, it will cause you to choose and affect how you choose to relate to those around you. It will speak to your motives. And men and women, just like you and me, fill chapter 11. And that encourages me. Because God remembers them not for their failures, but for their faith. We, on the other hand... We often remember ourselves and perhaps even remember others for their failures, and it's too bad. It's too bad that we get stuck on the failures of others, failing to forgive, failing to move forward, and only, only holding against people their failures instead of encouraging their faith. And the person that we do that the most to is ourselves. We do that in the form of regret. We do that in the form of hopelessness and just thinking, man, nothing's ever going to amount to our lives, but that's not our identity in Christ. Our identity in Christ is God building us up by faith and his choice to use us. And God took note of these men and women, not for their failure, not for their stumbling, not even for their humanity, but for their faith. So let's come to Abel here in chapter 11, verse 4, and let's learn what Abel is remembered by. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, through faith, he being dead still speaks. Abel. Abel is the first in a long line of people whose lives and actions teach us about the life and lifestyle of faith. Abel was the son of a very popular couple. Their names, Adam and Eve. He's the son of Adam and Eve and experienced a life of faith that his parents could never experience. I want you to consider, first of all, the family in which Abel was raised. Because Abel and his brother Cain were living a life of faith that his, their parents were unable to experience. And this is why. Adam and Eve experienced an intimate life with God 
without sin. They were able to enjoy. We're not told how long, but it is estimated quite a bit of time they were able to enjoy the presence of God in the Garden of Eden, untouched, untainted by sin, which, by the way, would require no faith because they had intimacy. They were close. They were with God, and it didn't require faith like you and I require faith. See, they saw, they experienced, they lived out their relationship. We, like Abel, we have to live by faith. We have to live in a way, that, that's why one of the biggest issues in your life and mine is believing God, trusting God. You know why we don't? We don't trust God at times because circumstances knock us down and we're overwhelmed by pain and sorrow and difficulty and worry and fear. Circumstances blind us to the reality of God. Lies come at us constantly, constantly, constantly and we choose to believe a lie instead of the truth of God's word. Feelings, circumstances, lies, temptations, they all seek to undermine, and you just hear that voice constantly. Did God really say? Did God really say? Is God really good? Did he really promise not to? Is God going to keep his promises? You know, it looks like God's not going to keep his promise. You've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Looks like God's not going to keep his promise. And we're constantly under attack to believe God and to live our lives by faith. Can you imagine the discussions and the, the time that Adam and Eve enjoyed talking to their boys about how it used to be? How it used to be. Can you imagine them sharing their testimony? It's the exact opposite of how we share our testimonies in many ways. But can you imagine, boys? Let's, let's just come around, let's talk, about, let's talk about where we were as they're discipling and training their kids in the ways of God. Boys, we were on the other side. It, it was amazing. It, it was unbelievable. We looked into his face. We walked with him. We talked with him. We heard his voice. Nothing compares, boys, to what it's like to be in the presence of God without sin. And what a sweet time that must have been. For Adam and Eve, until they sinned, there was no need for faith because they enjoyed God in, their very, in his very essence. But for their kids and every generation after, well, for Cain and Abel, they were the first generation that needed faith in its most deep deepest, most meaningful sense because they needed to trust that what God, mom and dad were telling them was true. Now, I've made a conscious choice over the years to share with my kids my testimony. It's a very bad, ugly testimony that had not God intervened at the age of 23, I would not be here today. I wouldn't be alive. And I have chosen, Marie and I have chosen over the years at age-appropriate levels to tell our kids what it was like on the other side. But it wasn't the Garden of Eden, it was the side of sin, of what sin can really do to a person, how it can really deceive you, how it can really corrode you, how you can cooperate so much with sin that you actually think that you're having fun and you're enjoying life and you're living life to the fullest all the while you're destroying yourself, the people that love you, all the people that care about you, you're a drain on society, and in my case, you're in and out of jail, you're making really stupid decisions, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time 
all the time and at every level. We would tell, as a matter of fact, for two of our children, we were very specific. For our second and our third kids, well, I would look them in the eye and they'd go, if it wasn't for the grace of God, you guys wouldn't be here. You would not be alive. You would have never been conceived because you're, if, if I was still alive, you and your mom, me and your mom would never be together. We probably wouldn't even be talking to each other. Things were so bad. But Adam and Eve, they shared the opposite. It's like, it's so bad now, but it was so good then. And so for us as parents, we share our testimonies. Why? Well, number one, I wanted my kids to understand the pain and penalty of sin. But secondly, I wanted my kids to understand the great grace of God. I did not just want them to hear about the things of God. I wanted them to experience the things of God. And the very home that they live in was a home created by the grace of God. A home sustained by the grace of God. And a home that will stay together. How? By the grace of God. Adam and Eve is like, man, it used to be so good, but we blew it. Sometimes your kids need to hear how you've blown it. They need to hear you, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, the mistakes that you made and the redemptive power of God to forgive you of those mistakes. And so as they're discipling their kids, somehow they conveyed to them, it's not told to us in the scriptures, but they conveyed to their children the requirements of God in worship. Because that's where we pick up in Hebrews 4, it was Abel worshiping God. And he was worshiping God by faith. Go back to Genesis chapter 4. Let's find out because we have insight on this event in Hebrews in Genesis chapter 4. So come back with me, Genesis chapter 4. As we meet Abel's brother, we know him to be Cain, but we're going to meet him here in chapter 4. Then we're going to find out what happened and what Hebrews 11.4 is all about. So Genesis chapter 4, pick up with me in verse 1. It says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now understand it, verse two here, neither one of these things are bad things. They're just doing things differently. Notice now in verse three. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel, verse 4, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And notice, Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but that you should rule over it. Verse eight. Now Cain talked with, his, with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And this is what Hebrews 11.4 is referring back to. And what's being brought out is that in these two men, in their attempt to worship God, Abel worshiped properly. More so, the Bible records that Abel's sacrifice was more excellent. Why? Because it was by faith. He believed God and believed God would reward him. He believed God in what he said and he obeyed God. 
The focus here is on faith, and we're still hearing it today. We're learning about it today. Some of you are learning about Cain and Abel for the very first time in your whole life. Why? Because of Abel's faith, of his Abel's commitment to God. In their relationship with God, the brothers had a place to worship, a time for worship, in a prescribed way. It was handed down to them from their parents. They didn't have a Bible or a system that will come later. God will reveal the system in detail. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He'll reveal that later in detail, but they don't have that yet. And the first recorded act of worship is a sacrifice, a sin offering. So what exactly is the difference? What made Cain and Abel's sacrifices different from one another? Well, we see that they were different. One was grain and one was animal. A lot of people make, a lot of commentators make a big point of this. Like, well, you know, if, if Cain would have brought an animal, maybe God would have accepted that. But we know later on that God not only accepts, but commands grain offerings and receives them. He's going to receive them later. So it wasn't so much what was brought as much as it was how it was brought. And you could say it this way. What was different between these two men was their heart. Because I want you to think about this for a second. If we were to play this out on the stage and you didn't know anything about the situation and we just say, hey, we got a couple guests today and instead of playing that video, we say, hey, we got Cain, a guy's named Cain and his brother Abel. They're gonna show us how to, how to sacrifice today and they play it out on this stage. Most of us are gonna think they're doing the right thing. Hey, there's one brother, he's offering an animal. That's interesting. And hey, there's another brother, he's offering grain. And they both seem to be doing the same thing at the same time. The only difference is what they're offering. So it looks like that they're both worshiping God. But one thing we wouldn't be able to see (laughs) is their heart. Because from God's perspective, one brother was worshiping and the other was faking One brother was sincere and offering a sacrifice by faith. The other one was insincere, or you could say hypocritical. Because you unfold this without Hebrews, you know, without the whole text, and we just stop and go, oh, look at they're worshiping God. That's what it looks like. It looks like to everyone watching that there's true worship. You know, the same thing happens today. I'm not naive enough to think that there aren't people in this room, maybe watching downstairs in the overflow or listening on. I'm not naive to think that there aren't a few listening to me right now that are just putting on a show for someone else. That you have all the appearances of worship. Your hands are up, you're sitting, you came early, you, you have a Bible, it's open on your phone, and you have the appearance, but because we don't know your heart, you look like everyone else. And really, we don't have ministry to search hearts. We, we aren't going to go around asking everyone, are you legit, you sincere? Because we know that, number one, the Holy Spirit of God is already talking to you and ministering to you. We know that. We're confident of that. But secondly, as much as you try, your behavior will betray you. Because behavior always comes by what, from what you believe. And you can only put up an act for so long before you forget that it's not real. But even so, it's not even that important that you fake us out. You never fake God out. He watches it all. 
And in this episode, we don't even know how many times this happened. If this was the first time, it says over a series of time, time that this came to pass, but we don't know if this, there was fakery many more times before. But this was the time that everything went south. Hebrews tells us that Abel's sacrifice was more excellent because he gave God what he wanted, what he prescribed. Faith always makes our service to God more excellent. Because you can do a lot of good things without faith. Uh, you can give charitably, you can give gifts, you can help people across the street, you can be a good employee, not by faith. You can do all of those things because you want to be good. But it won't give you a good testimony. Like, you'll be known by all the good things you did, but the Bible says, according to verse 2, it's only by faith that you obtain a good testimony. And it was Abel being remembered in Hebrews, it was Abel being remembered for his testimony even after he dies because it was his faith. You see, Cain, his brother, believed in God. Like, like he believed there was a God. He even believed that, the, that God could be given sacrifices, but he didn't believe God. And there's a big difference. You can believe in God. You can believe in a God, but not believe God. And that makes all the difference in your world. False religion does the same exact thing. False teachings will bring you to a place of following a list, but never taking you to the God never taking you to the one true God. And you just stop at a list. You just stop in doing what you're told to do instead of intimacy, kind of like the discussions Adam and Eve had. Man, if you, you continue to go forward, you'll grow in your relationship with God. It is worth it. We know him in his most purest sense. It is worth it. So, you know, when Adam and Eve is sharing their testimony, it's going back to a time and, and they're thinking, oh man, that was such a beautiful time that, that, that the builder and maker of the garden was God himself and not you and not me and your mom. But what we share today is, oh, not only was there a great time, but we weren't in the garden, but what are we sharing? What are we testifying to that we're moving forward to a city that God has promised eternity and his builder and maker is not man, but God. And he's ready as you move forward, living for eternity and not for today. Turn over to 1 John, would you? 1 John chapter 3, we have greater insight on the life of Cain here in John under the context of love. Cain, it says, was of the wicked one. As John contrasts two groups of people putting Cain in the last group. So pick up with me. 1 John is all the way almost toward the end of the Bible. 1 John chapter 3, pick up with me in verse 10. 1 John 3 verse 10. John is writing, he says, in this the children of God, that's one group, and the children of the devil, that's another group, are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Cain's eyes were on himself. He saw his brother's works and hated him for it. His brother was righteous and he was evil. And it was his jealousy and envy of his brother that led to disobedience, that led to anger, that led to his countenance falling. So many times... This is the first time in Genesis 4 that, that his countenance fell, which is really a phrase about discouragement and depression. 
is tied to anger. And so when I'm ministering to someone, and maybe you today, that is just captivated by a deep sense of discouragement and depression, one of the questions I always ask, and I'll ask you today, what are you so angry about? What has, what has so angered you that you have internalized that and has no outlet, and it's made you very discouraged and very despondent, even to the place where you might call yourself depressed? You know, there is a sense where discouragement, depression is attached to pain and difficulty and sorrow and grief for sure. But as we see in Genesis 4, it can also be attached to anger. And anger and jealousy left unchecked will just grow. You don't just stay jealous at a little place. It grows and it grows and it grows to the point of rank disobedience. And in Cain's situation, he murdered his brother because of his own sinful actions. Like he was the one that was wrong and he took out his anger and his countenance, you know, being so discouraged, he took it out by killing his brother. Let me just say this, sibling rivalry is alive and well today. Not so much, and it usually doesn't lead to this level of anger and malice, but it's alive today. It's alive in our families. It's alive in the church body, brother against brother and sister against sister. It shouldn't be. And we look at Cain today and you're like, okay, okay, I'm getting a little too close now. I know I don't get along with my sister, but I'd never murder her. Okay. You need to consider what Jesus said. Because when teaching us on the topic of murder, he says, oh, you know, you might think of Cain, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, you might think of murder as just physically taking the life of someone, but remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. The Bible says, you have heard it said to those of old that you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Jesus says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. And with that definition of murder, that broadens the scope of how we treat one another when things don't go our way. Jude puts it this way. There's only one chapter, but in Jude chapter 1, verse 11, he says this. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run in the greedily error of Balaam for profit, and have perished in the rebellion of Korah. And Jude just puts Cain in this murderous thing with rebellion and using God for profit and taking advantage of people. Cain brings his offering with no faith, he brought the offering of his own sweat, just like the world around us, just like the culture that we're in, depending on their own works, their own sweat, their own efforts, their own religions, their own made-up gods. Self-made men, self-made women, great confidence, have no need for God. But Cain was a wicked, unbelieving, hypocritical man according to God's estimation. He didn't want to worship God, but only gave the appearance that he was worshiping and was offended by the true worship of his brother. So much so it sparked jealousy. To Cain, God was a receiver and that he could bring to God what he did. Look what I've done. But to Abel, God was a giver and he was bringing back to God by faith all that God had given to him. And chapter 11 verse four ends with Abel obtaining a witness of righteousness. And we're still talking about him to this day. 
He did what God told him to do, how God told him to do it, by faith. And this is the only way a man can be born again. The only way your sins can be forgiven. The only way your life can be made right with God. You need to come God's way, doing what God says. Not a pastor, not a priest, not a religion, not a church. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It's man that's complicated the spiritual life that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And God is bringing us back to a simplicity through this whole chapter, week after week. I can't, I'm so excited in my own personal life to bring more simplicity in my life that I can respond to God by faith. I can respond to trouble by faith. I can respond to grief by faith. I can respond to difficulty by faith. That my life will be built up in faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Listen, fellowship family, it's impossible to claim to have faith but continue to disregard God's word. Or put it another way, it's, imposs- it's, it's, it's impossible to claim to have real biblical faith and have a life that betrays the faith you say you have. This is what the Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm, be filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what does that profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And Cain came to God with a dead faith. And the warning for us is that he looked and probably felt very religious very spiritual but God knew the heart and can I just say church a couple things before we go it is always a heart issue it's always a heart issue you can't fix a heart issue with more activity it makes things worse faith always precedes obedience it's not the other way around you may think that obedience or just kind of doing things, the, well, I'm doing spiritual things, and, and so what, what does that mean? It means nothing because faith comes first. It's faith, then obedience. It's faith, then obedience. And then obedience builds faith, and it's a beautiful cycle of your spiritual growth and mine. It's important that we realize that it's, you can look spiritual and be distant from God. Why? Because it's a heart issue. And as I read recently, it, the, the issue, it, the heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. In your life and in mine. The self-righteous man hates the truth. And cannot, that he can't save himself frustrates him. The self-righteous woman, because she can't buy her salvation, because she can't earn her salvation because she can't get some recognition for her salvation gets angrier and angrier to the point of murder as one commentator put it and I quote not only was Cain's sacrifice of vegetables unacceptable because rather than pointing to the lamb of God it spoke of his own effort it was also unacceptable because unlike Abel Cain did not offer his sacrifice by faith And this realization would stab the Jewish heart, the audience of the first century, 
because the Jews took great pride in their ceremonies, traditions, and attempts at spirituality. And what was the condition in the first century? Jesus came to the leaders of the church, the Pharisees, and said, you guys are like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Outward appearance, empty inside. That was where the leaders of the Jewish religion at the time. Abel's remembered, even though he's dead today, through faith, being dead, he still speaks. The testimony that we all want to bring. One more thing before we go. I want to speak to parents because of our consideration of Adam and Eve and the dialogue and discussion they would have with their kids. Parents, grandparents, your kids watch you. They watch you closely. So much of parenting is caught and not taught. Many rely upon the teaching. Do this, don't do that. Watch that, watch out for that. And while that is important and good, kids learn by example. And might I add, kids learn by your example and my example. And I've raised three children into adulthood and and I haven't been a perfect parent. But I know early on God spoke to my heart and spoke to my wife's heart that I wasn't gonna settle for raising good kids. A lot of parents settle for good kids, good kids. So that when you're at a party, you say, how's your son doing? Oh, he's a good kid. Yeah, but does he walk with the Lord? He's a good kid. He's a good kid. She's a good kid. No, God's responsibility to the parent is not to raise good kids. God's responsibility to us. You have one responsibility, mom, and one responsibility, dad. That's it. There's not 10, not 1,000. You don't need to buy a million books on parenting. Here's your responsibility. Get your kids to Jesus Christ. Transfer the faith to your kids. They have a responsibility to follow. That's their responsibility. But if you just settle for good kids, you may not get godly kids. But if you shoot for godly kids, good comes with godly. That's how it works. And we're so caught up in many other things. Like, like, like you, you, you think of your parenting kind of as like a, like a duty, an obligation. But like grace, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to be a parent. It's a joy to be a parent, as challenging as it might be. Those little kids... They actually reflect a lot of their parents. Did you know that? Those little sinners running around your house. <laughs> because two sinners made them. They go, oh, you know my kids and this and that. Yeah, they're probably like a mirror, aren't they? They go, man, she's so much like you. Yeah. He's so much like, yes. Parents, listen, it's never too late to make a decision to be a godly parent and to trust God with your kids. Because if you're happy and fulfilled with this life, and this is what you're into, and you got everything all packaged and ready in this world and this, and then you never talk about another world, you never long for another world, you never hope for another, you, like, you never hope for that city whose builder, you never hope to get out of here, you never hope to have redemption, you never hope to be reunited with your loved ones, you never hope to be in the presence of God, then what do you think your kids are going to learn? You're so concerned about school and you're so concerned about being in this world and so concerned you know some parents says if we just if we just build if go to the mountains and build a cave and I'll protect my kids from the world the world may not be 
your biggest enemy, your house might be. Your kids don't see you up early in the morning with your Bible open. And I, I really think it should be the Bible. You know, I know you have it on your iPad and everything, but you also do everything's on your iPad. So when your kids see you on the iPad, they don't know what you're doing. But there you are with a Bible open, communing with God, praying, maybe a tear coming down your cheek about the condition of the world and the condition of your heart. And, the, and your kids are saying, if your kids don't see you communing with God, where do you think they're going to learn it from? Well, Ed, we come to church, we drop them off in Sunday school, they should learn it there. Hey, we're going to drop the word of God into your kids' lives, that's for sure. But don't think for a moment that we've taken your responsibility away from you. <laughs> we're just coming along to help you. And we're coming along to settle that. You know, there are men and women that are dedicated in our kids' ministry, high school, junior high, they devote their lives to discipling your kids but they're not the primary responsibility. They're not the primary disciples of your kids. You are. And you've got to talk to your kids about that other world. You've got to live it out in their lives. If, if, but if they see dad and mom in the word and in prayer alone, they're going to learn that God is worth life. You're the model. You're the example. You're the one that still speaks. You have more influence in your kids than I do. I know from time to time someone will say, Pastor, Pastor, please talk to my son. Please talk to my daughter. Because if you talk to them, they will surely listen. Probably not. I'll, I'll talk to them. And I'll open the Bible to them. But, but they're not going to listen to me like they listen to you. You're the voice in their life. I don't have any supernatural powers that can get to your kids more than God has given you to speak the truth to your kids. And it's never too late. You know, this is a time where regret and condemnation might come up, but you just don't do that. We're all imperfect parents. That's gonna be the big revelation. We all make mistakes and we're all trying to do a little better than our parents and we're doing better with what we know. But I want you to know that it is important that you take responsibility for the spiritual health of your children and that you choose to bring them to Jesus, raising godly kids by example, by reality. And it could just be that it starts with, you got little guys, it starts with getting on your knees and asking your kids for forgiveness. And you say, I've committed, and you just lay it before them. Maybe you don't get on your knees, maybe your kids are five inches taller than you. And you stand up, you look them in the eye, and you go, I am, will you please forgive me for the mistakes I made? We're gonna start new starting today. Because God is the God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance. It's never too late to influence your kids. You say, well, Ed, my kids are grown up and they're not walking with the Lord. Now it's their responsibility. God's going to hold them accountable for that. But you can continue to love them, care for them, speak into their lives, and it's never too late. But the testimony that we live is by faith and we trust our kids by faith to God. Because we are just one generation. We're just one generation away from the faith not being passed on. Just one generation. Your house could be the generation where it stops. And imagine you've been in church your whole life, but you never taught your kids relationship with God. But we're also one generation from transforming a family. <laughs> They say, you know, when they do those uh, uh, DNA tests and, you know, what, what, what ancestry.com, they need to have a little logo that puts a cross right there on the family tree. 
because the cross changed every single limb backwards and forwards by faith in Jesus Christ. That you could be the generation that transforms your family for the good. And God wants you to be that generation. And he wants us to teach our kids how to live by faith for a world that's to come. Because this world is passing away. I don't know if you noticed it, but it's just passing away. And only what's, you know, as Pastor Chuck Smith taught us many years, it's stuck in my head. Only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. And how many of us have thrown bag after bag of garbage into the trash that didn't last? But God, his word is eternal and it's stuck with us forever. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and uh, we'll have the worship team come up because I took a lot of time. It's those videos taking all my teaching time. I'm not willing to give it up. So we're going to end in worship and I'm going to release you to go get your kids. But this one thing, one, a parent came up to me last night and we were talking about strong-willed kids. Anybody have a strong-willed kid in there? Don't say it. I don't want to see it. Don't say it. But basically, I believe there's one strong-willed kid for every family. The names are just different. I had a strong-willed child as well. And I picked up a book along the way that I want to recommend to you. I think it's from the Lord. It just came up in ministry and conversation. Helped me a lot. I don't remember a lot of the book, like the whole thing. And I ended up giving it away because God did a great work. I'm not going to tell you which one of my children was strong-willed. I'm not going to tell you. But some of the principles and God did a great work and things are great. This is the book, The Strong-Willed Child by Dr. James Dobson. And it might be a new version now. And and here's a principle I remember to this day. And, And he taught me that as I'm trying to shape and mold my child's will, that if I'm not careful, not only will I break their will, but I'll break their spirit. I'd never ever thought of that principle before because that's the last thing I want to do with my kid is break their spirit. But I do want to train their will because a strong-willed kid is going to do a lot for this world. Don't you think we need a lot more strong-willed Christians in the world today? That's a good personality to have, not a bad one. It's good to be strong and confident, but it's also good to be strong and confident, yielded and surrendered to the Holy Spirit. So we don't have that book downstairs. Maybe we'll get it and put it downstairs in the bookstore, but you have to order it somewhere. It's The Strong-Willed Child by Dr. James Dobson. And I think it'll bless you and encourage you, those of you that are just kind of at at wit's end with your strong-willed kid. God has a plan for your strong-willed kid. And God has a plan for your quiet kid. And God has a plan for your kid that might not be walking with the Lord today. God has a plan for your family. So it starts with you as you draw near to the Lord. Amen? We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.